Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to behold you in worship and to behold you in your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to understand and to appreciate the glories therein contained. As we turn to one of your servants of old, I pray that we would see that faith that you had granted by a sovereign work of your miraculous power in the soul of one who is called to bring forth the message of the gospel to the unlikely hearer. We thank you, Lord, that we see in the record of history that there were times when you were pleased to use the proclamation of your holy word to spark resurrection life, regenerate life in the hearts of the hearers, even ones who had never heard of you before and who were lost in their trespasses and sins. Lord, you have met us also with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we stand before you in this place, Lord, as trophies of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that your word continues to go forth, changing hearts, drawing them to salvation, and establishing them in Christ. We pray that you would do those two things through the proclamation of your word this day. Draw unto salvation anyone within the hearing of this message who is not in Christ this day. And for those who are and who confess that their hope is in Christ alone, may you establish us firmly and our footing, may it be fixed upon the rock, Jesus Christ, as a result of what we learn from your scripture this day. If this prayer is answered, it will be solely because the Spirit is pleased to use the foolishness of preaching and the incompetent vessel which brings this message today, especially as compared to its holy purity and absolute truth, not to mention awakening the hearer to hear your word and that it might change us from the inside out. We thank you, Lord, for your power to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege it is to open the scriptures together. I'd encourage you to do so turning to Jonah chapter 1. And our text today will be verses 7 through 16. Jonah 1, 7 through 16. The title of this morning's message is Gospel at Sea. This title reflects the location where the message of the gospel reaches the pagan, the unbelieving sailors, mariners as they're called in the ESV translation in our text today. Where did they... See this, or where was this opportunity realized to place faith in the one true God, Yahweh? It was at sea, it was in a storm. The aim of this morning's message is that we may learn from this example to capitalize, if you will, on gospel opportunities in times of crisis. Uh, the, the phrase was in my mind as I was preparing this message this week never waste a crisis. This phrase came into popularity in a political sense in recent years. There was a cabinet member of Obama, as I recall, who uttered this philosophy with respect to a political agenda. What he understood was a crisis can be useful if you can uh, use it as leverage for your agenda, your political goals. Well, I don't know about that. In fact, most politicians are probably going to exploit a crisis to nefarious ends especially so long as they don't affirm the true King, Christ. However, a crisis is always a good time to turn to the Lord, the God of the storm. 
Never waste a crisis, therefore, could be a worthy motto for us to be ready to give an answer of salvation when it is most apparent to the lost that they are in trouble. To be always ready to give the message of salvation when it is most apparent to the lost that they are in trouble. In the providence of God, He uses deep trials, unforeseen circumstances, intense crises to accomplish sometimes this very thing. And such was the case in Jonah's time as well. And so we see this today. Stand with me, if you would, with your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 1. And behold, the Word of God delivered to us from ages past, it is true today as it was then and eternally relevant. Jonah 1, verse 7. Here we have God's holy words. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Verse 11, They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down before us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it, is, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You remember the cause for the storm, do you not? Jonah had made a terrible decision. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What did Jonah do? As we have studied, he left on a journey, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction nearly, for Tarshish, fleeing from the call of God. Verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Throughout the text of Jonah's account, we see the sovereignty of God over the elements of nature. The Lord prepares a fish. The Lord prepares a plant. The Lord prepares a worm to eat the plant, and in this case, the Lord prepared a storm. It says, verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Mariners were afraid. Let us open with noticing something 
that might be surprising upon a closer look. First of all, it seems there's a twist here. In the context of our passage today, we see that this storm was threatening to destroy the vessel on account of whose unfaithfulness? The pagan idolater sailors or Jonah, the recalcitrant, the disobedient prophet? Which one, which group or individual group of individuals was responsible for this storm? Was it on account of Jonah's disobedience or the idolatry of these pagan sailors that the storm was whipped up against them? Yes, it is correct. The answer is in our text today. It was because of Jonah's unfaithfulness. It was not, in this case, the flagrant idolatry of his shipmates. And you see their idolatry right in the text. They each prayed to their own God. They don't know what to do. Like, well, have we exhausted all our opportunities here, all our options? No, there's still one sleeping man. I don't know what God he serves, but have him cry out to his God. Maybe his God can control this sea and still the storm. So this is the state of affairs on the ship. And as we consider this circumstance, the principle may well apply to our day. And it's one worth taking note of. Jonah's experience leads us to ask this question. How much of the tumult of judgment we experience as a people today is the direct result of the unfaithfulness of the people of God running from their call to proclaim the word of God to the unbelieving and pagan culture. Listen again. How much of the judgment, the tumult, the unrest that we experience yet today as a people is the direct result of the unfaithfulness of the people of God running from their call to proclaim the word of God to the unbelieving and pagan culture. Is that a question we consider very seriously? It's a lesson we can learn from the book of Jonah. I'm sure you're as guilty as I am of assuming that most of all the evil that happens by way of God's apparent judgment is because of our unbelieving neighbors, because of the pagans in this culture. However, Jonah's situation testified to a different circumstance indeed. And this could, be our, this could be true in our case, rather than what we are far more likely to assume, namely that calamities around us are due consequence of the idolatry of the unbelieving you know, person here or there, flagrant unbeliever, or person who is an utter and obvious rebel. 1 Peter 4, 16 through 19, I'm reminded of as I consider this truth, Peter admonishes the church, saying that often judgment begins in the house of God. He considers the church to pay attention. He exhorts the church to pay attention first and foremost to her own affairs. That we search inwardly before we condemn outwardly. He says, yet if anyone, verse 16 of 1 Peter 4, suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Sometimes those who claim to trust their souls to a faithful creator, yet do not do the good that he commands, 
is the very cause for ground zero of judgment, judgment of correction, coming to the house of God, if you will. This is the message in the New Testament and the Old of Jonah and of Peter. Peter himself can relate to Jonah in many ways. We'll touch on them later. So it's no surprise that this message is continuous through God's servants, recording His ways throughout all of covenant history. 1 Peter 4, 16-19, as we read, reiterates this principle, calling us to suffer as Christians, reminding us that judgment often begins close to home, not out there because of their sins, but often right here because of our abdication of our gospel responsibility. Abiding in His presence, abiding in the presence of the true God involves presenting ourselves, as Romans 12:1 says, as living sacrifices. Or as the Gospels say, ready to take up our cross and follow Him even to the hill of crucifixion if necessary. That's the picture. So abiding in God's presence often involves offering ourselves as living sacrifices, embracing the faithful obedience worthy of His name. If we, brothers and sisters, have been guilty of fleeing from kingdom responsibilities or of cowering in crisis, let us look to the corrective to the corrective measures that God took in Jonah's case and learn from them. Jonah provides an example of repentance. We can start by answering unbelievers the common questions that arise from their hearts and minds in times like these. And that's what I would like to consider this morning. Let us consider three burning questions raised in times of crisis. These were questions that rose to the fore. They're almost visceral. They're almost subconscious. They're just a re- almost a natural reactive response from those who are caught in this emergency. These three questions are first, who is responsible for this? Secondly, what can we do? And thirdly, how are we saved? Those are three burning crash questions raised in times of existential crisis. Existential just means an adjective where it threatens our well-being, our existence. When our existence is threatened, when we really feel the pressure and the possibility of our life being completely collapsed or our futures being utterly destroyed, it, raise, it tends to raise these questions to the soul, to the consciousness of all humans at all times. These burning questions, who is responsible, what can we do, and how are we saved? And right here is a gospel opportunity. May we learn to capitalize in these times of crisis to share the answer to those questions according to the Word of God, the only, ultimate, true answers. So let us consider the answers in our text today and their questions from the example of Jonah. First of all, verses 7 through 9, who is responsible? Again, in Jonah 1 we read, verse 7, They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. And these are the frantic, unbelieving sailors trying to figure out what to do. They say, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. You see the question they were concerned with? Who is responsible for this situation? Who do we blame for this? Who do we hold to account? So what did they do? They cast lots, again verse 7b, and the lot fell on who? Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on Whose account as evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what are, uh, and what, of what people are you? Who are you? 
are you responsible for this? Explain yourself. Answer for this. The lot has fallen on you. You have the responsibility to answer this question. Who is responsible for this existential crisis? Well, the answer comes in the text. Jonah, with a swift change of heart, takes full responsibility. He says in one sense, I am responsible. More specifically, you can say, I am responsible in Jonah's shoes because of my sin. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, verse 9, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You see what he has done in that confession? Eliminated all excuses. He has told them, I fear the Lord who has made everything, who controls the world and owns it and directs it sovereignly by created right and decree. I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made sea and dry land. So what gives, Hebrew? Why are you trying to run from His presence, you idiot? If you believe, in fact, that He owns heaven, earth, and sea, where do you think you are going? You can understand how frustrated and flabbergasted they must have been. Well, the answer is because of sin. The men were exceedingly afraid, continues verse 10. What is this you have done? For the men knew that He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Because he had told them. Who is responsible? Consider sin and sovereignty. It is the sin of man that is responsible for the fallen conditions that we grapple with in this world. Sometimes the relationship between our sin and a crisis is a very direct one, as is the case in Jonah right here. Sometimes the relationship between sin generally and a fallen creation generally is more indirect, but but it is nevertheless absolutely connected. After all, the Bible says that the state of affairs that this entire world fell into as a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, our spiritual parents, our physical parents, as a result of that sin, the world now is in a state of disrepair. It is no surprise that volcanoes erupt. It is no surprise that the earth opens and at times swallows Korah and his followers, and one fell swoop of God's judgment because they deserve it. God will raise up agents of justice from this earth itself, and the elements of nature will cry out against the pagan if he continues in his unbelief in sin. And men will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them that they might escape the anguish of standing naked, as it were, before a holy God and having no covering for his sin. Jonah recognizes this, he affirms this, he confesses as much, and it is clear, therefore, who is responsible for this storm. The prophet who disobeyed his Lord tried foolishly to run away as responsible for this situation. Now, this is interesting as we look a little closer. Back up a few verses. Notice what the mariners, the seamen, are doing, these sailors. It says, The Lord hurled this great wind upon the sea. This mighty tempest was blowing. Verse 5, The mariners were afraid and each cried aloud to his God. This is interesting. At this time in history, culturally speaking, one thing is true. Or one thing we could say that Jonah and these men had in common. And that thing was this. 
There is no such thing as a natural disaster. You could write that in your notes. It's an important phrase to consider in light of biblical truth and the sovereignty of God. The unbelievers and the believers, and the believer in this case, they both knew one thing. There is no such thing as a natural disaster. What do I mean by that phrase? I don't mean that the earth doesn't do disastrous things. Yes, disastrous things happen in nature. What I mean is there is no such thing as a disaster that is purely, exclusively of nature. Every single disaster in this world, natural or otherwise, has a sovereign cause. The unbeliever and the believer, unbelievers and the believer knew that in this case. How did they take this event? Well, the impulse of all on board to a man was that this storm must be a sign of divine disapproval. Something is not right. We had better address a big problem because we are in the midst of an existential crisis in this storm. Something has got to change. And that something that needed to change was in the heart of Jonah himself. And that change eventually affected the heart of everyone on board this vessel. It turned out to be a gospel at sea opportunity. And as we see this case, it is important for us to understand this because this given of there's no such thing as a natural disaster is not the common understanding today. Man today in his rebellion, he seeks to deny God in a little different sort of way than the pagans of old. The pagans have now tried to erect a God of, in nature itself to deny the sovereign over nature. They say that there is no creator, there is no uh, sovereign, there is no ultimate Lord over nature, and so disasters just happen. It's just a natural disaster. There's nothing to look at in a lightning storm or in a flood that takes over an American city, a hurricane that threatens a beach in Florida, an earthquake that shakes the foundation of Los Angeles, just to name a few possible examples of natural crises that we could have and have seen in our land. There's nothing to take from those except the earth is a volatile place and sometimes the atoms move around. Well, that is a foolish proposition indeed. It is neither biblical nor true. There's no way that you can read the Scripture and come to the conclusion that there is such a thing as a purely natural disaster. We see this in the book of Jonah and all through the Psalms. Actually, in the Lord revealing His name, He is the one who has sovereignty over the seas. We see this in Jesus Christ's own example as He declares the gospel and demonstrates His works in the New Testament. When Christ walks upon the surface of the stormy sea, there is a message. The message is, I am sovereign over the forces of nature. When Jesus was sleeping in the boat, in one sense like Jonah, in another sense totally unlike Jonah, in the gospel, we find he is aroused from his slumber and does one thing, speaks a word, and the seas are perfectly calm. This storm was under the direct control of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sovereign over nature. Even the lots are cast, not by chance, but they themselves are controlled. It says in this, in this uh, instance in verse 7 in our text, they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account evil has come. Today we might think of lots as a game of chance, 
But that also would be a fallacy. The Bible says otherwise. What were lots? Well, something like dice that were cast and usually in a way uh, of uh, you know, trying to determine something by quasi-spiritual means. It would not be a recommended course of action for us today, of course, because it would re- we, God teaches us to seek His will other ways. However, it would be a mistake to consider the fall of the dice as subject to mere chance. And Proverbs 16.33 tells us this unequivocally. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so we see that the lots were cast in this instance. Its decision was from the Lord, and it pleased the Lord for the lot to fall on Jonah, which truthfully pointed out that he was responsible for the storm inasmuch as he had sinned against the holy God. But ultimately, we see in this text, the answer to who is responsible is God Himself. God is the primary cause. He is the one behind these things. It is His sovereign will to use and organize in His providence circumstances such as this to accomplish His great will, bringing repentance to Jonah from his sin of wandering away, and bringing repentance and regeneration to these sailors in the process. Who might have been in the mind of the pagans? Well, let's consider other gods for a moment. These mariners were afraid. They each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. Perhaps they thought that cargo might be something of a sacrifice to the sea gods or whatever. Frantically doing everything in their power, uh, materially and spiritually, to try to save themselves. So they're crying out to their gods. So they obviously had an idea, a false one, of a sovereign, of a deity in their minds. Each one perhaps a different god, who knows. But the idea of a sovereign or a spiritual being or entity that controls nature to some degree was not lost on these men. They were just worshipers of false gods. And it's interesting to see the contrast of their worldview and the true worldview as the text continues to unfold. This is seen in verse 8. Then they, so these unbelieving, idolatrous uh, uh, sailors, they said to him, to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And then notice these questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, why would you ask those kinds of questions? You know, what do you do for a living? It kind of sounds like to us. But in the mind, in the worldview of these individuals at the time, they were wondering, no doubt, what kind of parochial God he served. Parochial means over an area or a region. Okay, the lot fell on you. Tell us about your local deity, your God. You see, the worldview at the time of of the pagans was either polytheistic or another fancy word I'll teach you, henotheistic. Henotheistic means you affirm one God, but you do not deny the possibility or the existence of other gods. Polytheistic means worshiping many gods. This was, by and large, the spirituality of the day. People saw, well, maybe there was a God over the sea. Maybe there was a God over the land. Maybe there was a God over uh, trade, a God over peace and war and so on. That was a polytheistic view. Or they were henotheistic. Uh, There is one God for Israel. There is another God for Tarshish. Another God for Nineveh. Well, against all these ideas, all of these aberrant and idolatrous concepts of God, 
Notice the answer that Jonah gives. He says to them, I am a Hebrew, in answering their questions, I fear the Lord. Notice in your text, Lord I trust is in all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps. You should be familiar with that translation by now or transliteration. The term there is the unique word or the unique name for God, Yahweh. I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh. That is a peculiar, that means a name that applies to the one true God alone. The God of heaven, Jonah goes on to say, who made the sea and the dry land. Heaven, earth, and sea. So in the face of this confession of other gods, Jonah answers their worldview with the truth. He says, I am the one, I come from a people who worship and fear a God who is sovereign over me and sovereign over you. Sovereign over this sea that is in storm right now and sovereign over the land should He ever give us grace to reach it. Sovereign over heaven, in fact. This is Yahweh, the one true God. Today, people affirm something called multiculturalism. That's an idea that each set of ideas or each enculturated group of people, they have values of equal merit with any other. This is a sort of polytheistic or henotheistic error. Today, as in other times, it would have been considered uh, it would have been considered, um, what's the word, uh, something that would be uncouth to say or something that would be um, offensive to other cultures to say that your God was sovereign over them. And in the shoes of Jonah, responsible for this storm, you could imagine what a step of faith and a, a cart confession this must have comprised for him to say, My God is responsible for the storm. I'm guilty, that's why it's here. But He is also sovereign over you, over heaven, earth, and sea. This was a change of heart for Jonah, for sure. Jonah's answer signals a shift in his mindset and begins to preach the gospel to these unbelievers in an existential time, or in a time of existential crisis. When their lives are threatened, Jonah answers the question, who is ultimately responsible for this and the situation? He answers in one word, Yahweh. Now, when he gave this answer, it would appear absurdly foolish to run as he did from the God and maker of heaven, earth, and land. And that was obvious to the hearers, to the men on the ship. They condemned him rightly for doing such a thing. But they did so because they now knew and actually had faith and believed that there was one true God who ruled over this storm, and their hearts were beginning to awaken to who is responsible for all things, from the heart of the individual man to the elements of nature. When Jonah uses this peculiar name, if you will, this unique name for God, it's the personal name, Yahweh. We've mentioned it many times before. Wrapped up into that name is God's self-disclosure, introducing Himself to Moses, the I Am, the Eternal One, the self-existent One, the One who is dependent on nothing outside of Himself, 
the one who binds himself in unbreakable covenant relationship with those upon whom in his grace alone he sheds his favor. Yahweh is the one who rules over all and, uh, and before whom all and everyone serves at his pleasure. Yahweh is the one who controls the lightning, who whips up the storm, who, storm, uh, who calms the stormy seas. This is Yahweh. But Yahweh is also unique to God alone. And this was a bold claim that Jonah gave even under these conditions. Jonah did not meet the unbeliever on some kind of quasi-common ground of abstract, philosophical, transcendent principle. Oh, you believe in an idea of God? I believe in an idea of God. Let's talk about God for a moment. The Bible knows nothing of this. The Bible knows one God and one God alone, Yahweh, the eternal self-existent covenant keeper, Lord of all, sovereign of the universe. And in Him is our only hope. And because of Him, this world continues to spin on its axis, just the right distance from the sun, allowing the trees to bloom and the grass to bloom and the uh, day and night to continue for life to flourish on this tiny orb in the cosmic scope of things. This is Yahweh. And this is the answer to the burning question in time of crisis. Who is responsible for this? There is a sovereign God who rules over all. Let us acknowledge Him as the Lord of heaven, earth, and sea. Second burning question raised in times of crisis. What can we do? How do we fix this problem? Well, the answer is very clear, and by process of elimination, it's apparent in short order that there is nothing of themselves that Jonah nor the sailors could do to remedy the situation. And we continue to see this, and we see this illustrated as we continue in our text, verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid. They said to him, Jonah, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they recognized this utter calamity was a result of Jonah's disfavor, falling out of favor with the one sovereign over all. So they need to come up with a plan, verse 11. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? What can we do? He said to them, this was the right answer, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Wow. Would that have been your first response? Well, Jonah's first response when the Lord held him to account, was to run away. But Jonah repented as the Lord brought corrective measures. And what was the repentant response of Jonah? Throw me and the mercy of the maker of heaven, earth, and sea. Throw me into the stormy sea. That's that's the right thing to do. What a gracious hope we find in the story of Jonah. When the Lord confronts us with His Word, oftentimes, Our first impulse, our first response is to shrink away. Perhaps to run, to obfuscate, to deny, to come up with excuses, to to offer another suggestion, to try something else. But the Lord is faithful and kind. And He does not despise those whom He corrects. In fact, He loves them like a father correcting His son whom He loves. Hebrews 12 tells us. 
And this is a picture of God doing exactly that in the case of Jonah. And so as this storm corrects Jonah and brings him that cosmic spanking, if you will, it sets his heart in a better place indeed. And now he surrenders his life and livelihood to the will of the Lord and says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. That's what you can do. Well, the narrative continues. This Actually, his advice wasn't immediately taken. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not. As if to say, we haven't exhausted all our options yet. Let's try rowing even harder. Summon that adrenaline burst. Pull hard against the oars. Perhaps we can save this man's life and get back to dry land. But they could not, the text says, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Let us note in this passage that there are two kinds of fear. This is interesting. Now the men were afraid as soon as this great storm whipped up the sea into such a frenzy. And the mighty tempest threatened to break up the ship. And that was one kind of fear, the existential fear, if you will, that we've been talking about, the men fearing for their lives. But notice in this crisis, there was a second kind of fear that began to add insult to injury, if you will, to plague the psyche of these men. In verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid, as if to say, if what the storm threatened to do to them wasn't enough, now they were even more afraid because they realized the power behind the storm. It is more fearful indeed to recognize that there is a God who controls and sovereignly dictates all of the forces of nature. That is a far more, in one sense, terrifying thought indeed to the unregenerate man than the fact that, hey, stuff happens in a chaotic world. When man begins to realize the truth that God Himself is behind the forces of nature, he must ask much more profound questions. Now the answer to what shall we do is not just building a stronger ship. It's not just building a thicker castle. It's not seeking calmer seas. The answer to what we do is, how do I come in right standing with the God who blew this storm, who hurled it against this ship in the first place? Now the answer to what to do is far more complex than originally thought. We live in a day and age where we think of ourselves proud and strong because of our technological abilities. We can build ships in the spirit of the Titanic. You remember what happened? They built this ship, uh, something that mankind had not seen the likes of uh, ever before in history. And with all kinds of pride and hubris, they sailed out into the seas that are controlled by our sovereign God and said, with the audacity of an idiot, this thing will never sink. And with just one of his little icebergs, God taught mankind a lesson. If he would but learn it, every time you set sail at sea, whether you are in an aircraft carrier or an inflatable raft, you only survive another moment because God is gracious to you. The grace of God is the safety of man. It is not the thickness of the steel on the hull of our vessels. It is not the aircraft that boasts all kinds of firepower sitting on the deck. 
It is not an insurance policy we purchase for peace of mind. It is not the peace and security of a well-regulated nation. It is not entitlement promises and a social safety net in a prosperous nation and government. None of these things offer peace. And yet we lie to ourselves that we do. Behind all of the uncertainty of life is a God who certainly decreed every single instance and we just don't know His plan. That's why it seems chaotic to us. We must submit to Him. Submit yourself to the sovereign of the storm. Submit yourself, even if it feels like you're being hurtled into the waves, leaving security, you know, that natural feeling of security behind. Submit yourself to the Lord. You're safer there. You're safer in a belly of a fish than running away from His presence in an able vessel. That's what the lesson of Jonah is. There are two kinds of fear. There's this natural fear and then there's this fear that honors and reveres and respects the Lord, the sovereign of all, as it comes to our attention that we must answer to Him. We don't just escape situations, but we stand before a sovereign God and He is our judge and we must answer for our state of heart. We are worthy of destruction unless we are saved. Different kind of salvation, different kind of fear, not a stronger ship, but the ark, Jesus Christ, bringing us through the waters of judgment. What can we do? Well, we can pay the wages of sin. Jonah says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. He understood that the wages of sin is death. And Jonah's confession acknowledged exactly what he deserved. It did not minimize the consequences in his case. It offered no excuses on account of the wickedness of others, the Ninevites, the Assyrians. If they weren't such a wicked people, I wouldn't have to bring them uh, the good news anyway. You can imagine my fear. They're such terrorists. They're such unruly, ungodly people. I mean, cut me a little slack here. Jonah made no excuses. He did not resort to self-justification. He understood the wages of sin. He was going to have to pay them unless God paid them for him, and God did pay the wages of sin for him. Ultimately, he did it through Christ himself, who was a type of Jonah, who was thrown to the sea of death, as it were, was not rescued by a fish, but was killed. And for three days and three nights was in the belly of the earth, as it were, in the heart of the grave, in the place of Sheol, the place of the dead, to purchase the salvation of Jonah, who understood the wages of sin is death, and the only way to be saved is if someone else pays the wages. Nevertheless, he understood this fact and he confessed the same. Finally, we see, if we can analogize just a bit, that it is not by works of righteousness that we are saved, lest any man should boast. I picture this spiritual truth as we see the men rowing against the waves. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land as if to illustrate salvation attempts in our own strength, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And that is a good illustration of trying to save yourself, spiritually or otherwise. If you try to save yourself, pull yourself up from the boots, by your own bootstraps, if you reject the salvation that is, is exclusively found in the cross of Christ, it's like rowing against the storm. And with every stroke of the oar, the next wave is higher. And with every exhale of breath, the wind increases in speed. 
and your works are counted as debt against you. And it is not by rowing hard against our inevitable end that any man is an inch closer to salvation, but only trusting Jesus Christ, the sole power to save. What can we do in these times of existential crisis? Nothing of ourselves. We can only trust ourselves to the sovereign of the ways and the sovereign of salvation. This leads me to the final point and the third burning question raised in times of crisis. How are we saved? How are we saved? Verse 14 of Jonah 1. Therefore, the sailors, realizing the futility of their rowing efforts, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This is a telling prayer. Only the Spirit of God could in a matter of moments, in the midst of the chaos of a storm, move these, you know, henotheistic, polytheistic, whatever they were, pagan, you know, likely extremely rough around the edges, bad reputation sailor types, you know, if who if they were really smart and intelligent probably would have picked a different profession. You know, God took these types of individuals and in a matter of moments in the chaos of a storm, caused them by the Spirit's influence to confess and to cry out a prayer like this. First of all, they said, let us not perish for this man's life. As if to ask God to free them from the curse of federal sin. In other words, we can see in their confession something of a parallel. The sin that we have in us is sin from birth by virtue of Adam's fall. Adam was a representative head of all. And it was the sin of Adam communicated to the human race, original sin as we call it, that did us all in in one fell swoop. There's something of a picture of that in this case. Deliver us or let us not perish for this man's life. In other words, lay not this man's sin upon us. We recognize that we're guilty together in this ship. But is there a way, they cry out to the one true God, to be freed from the curse of sin? To be freed from the curse of federal or representative sin, if you will. Secondly, they cry, lay not on us innocent blood. What do they recognize? Well, they recognize in this act of throwing this man overboard, that they are likely doing something worthy of greater judgment still. Now we will be guilty of sin, but they ask us, they ask the Lord, they say, forgive us for killing this man. Forgive us our sins for killing this man. What a moral dilemma they are in. And they're wrestling with it. Why are they wrestling with it? Because they are living their life now and their decisions in light of Yahweh. Not in light of their stupid little gods. They probably carved out of a stick or imagined in this hole or hovel or on a mountain peak somewhere. Now they're living their life in light of Yahweh and their prayer reflects it. And finally they say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And here they acknowledge that they are subordinates to His sovereign will. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. There seems to be a parallel in the text of Jonah, foreshadowing gospel truths in this event. 
Why do, we, why do I say this? Because God uses the death of one man to save everyone else on board. Does that picture of salvation sound familiar to you? The parallels run even deeper still, and we see them in Acts chapter 2. Consider 21 and following. And it shall come to pass, this by way of prophecy, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These men in the ship at this time are calling upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. God will answer them with salvation. Verse 22, men of Israel, so this is the apostle Peter giving his sermon after Pentecost, announcing the gospel truth. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amazing indeed. These events may I submit to you in Jonah chapter 1. They foreshadow a prophet to come, a prophet who would be slain according to the plan of the Father as the substitute for the sins of those who killed him, yet he would rise again after three days and three nights, as it were. Again, these events in Jonah's gospel, if you will, they foreshadow a prophet to come who was slain according to the plan of the Father as the substitute for the sins of those who killed him, yet he would rise again. This is a picture that we see of typology and fulfillment. Jonah prefigured in many parallels this truth about Jesus Christ. Jonah's, Jonah was the one man who was sacrificed in order for everyone in the boat to be saved. Jonah was swallowed by a fish and therefore three days was dead to rights. But Jonah rose again, if you will, from that fish when the Lord spewed him up on dry land. How are we saved? We are saved by this kind of powerful action by a sovereign God moving heaven and earth to accomplish our redemption through substitutionary atonement. Then this, these men in this great act of faith, remember they did not want to do this. They tried everything in their power to avoid this eventuality of throwing Jonah overboard. They weren't angry with him and said, get out, you know, we're so upset. Instead, it was an act of faith, I submit. In verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. A fancy word that we must not lose, or term we must not lose in theology, or we lose the gospel, is penal substitutionary atonement. Punishment taken by another. Punishment absorbed by a substitute, one standing in our place. Jonah pictured this in this act, in this act of faith of throwing him overboard. He, in a sense, prefigured this substitutionary atonement. These men were trusting in the death of another for their salvation. Trusting in the death of another for their salvation. And so do we. So do we, brothers and sisters. We trust in the death of another 
for our salvation. Christ was crucified at the hands of cruel men. Men that were prepared and anointed, it says in Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28, to crucify the Lord of glory. Had not God prepared in His sovereign hand Herod, the people, and the religious leaders to condemn Jesus unto death? Yes, He had. And so, by the instrument of the, or by the instrument that these wicked men ruled, Christ Himself was killed. But this plan was decreed and accomplished in the sovereignty of God for the redemption of His people, trusting in the death of another for our salvation. This is the gospel. Jonah inadvertently, in spite of all the odds against him, planted a church on a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the middle of a storm, by being thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. Final verse in our text today, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I wonder how many back in Israel got the news that there were converted Jews, if you will. There were converted believers on the high seas that now their hearts were changed. They rejected their old gods. They worshiped and served Yahweh, the one true God. And this small cadre of Gentiles was sailing off to their next destination, having made vows to worship and serve the one true God of heaven, earth, and sea. Would have been as surprising to Jonah as anyone else. Peter himself was also surprised in Acts chapter 10. We won't go there this morning, but think of this parallel as well. Peter was who? A Bar-Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. It, we, uh, point in fact, we see, or it, we see through the course of redemptive history that this was not the last surprise mission that would be launched from Joppa that would end with Gentiles being saved. Think of it. Jonah, from the port of Joppa, goes out and gets his first congregation under these conditions on the ship, and later the men of Nineveh repent. Jonah is bringing the gospel, as it were, to Gentiles far and abroad. And he did so leaving Joppa. In Acts chapter 10, what Jonah prefigured would be fulfilled in Peter's commission, son of Jonah, to leave Joppa and to go to the house of Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, a pagan, a Gentile, and bring the message of salvation. Peter himself would be reluctant at first. Wait, what are you talking about? But instead of running 2,500 miles away, he trusts the revelation of the Lord. He sees the dream and understands a shift is taking place. Perhaps he remembered the story of his father's namesake, Jonah himself, who was called from Joppa to reach unlikely Gentiles with a message of faith in Yahweh, and so he went. And Cornelius and his whole household came to Christ. They trusted in the death of another for their own salvation, having no prior, you know, real affinity or cultural background with the Jews, but God was pleased to save them. So Jonah... And this account answers these three questions. Who is responsible? What can we do? And how are we saved? We are responsible for the calamity that is around us as much as we are sinners. God demonstrates His sovereignty in all these circumstances to accomplish His great will. What can we do? Well, nothing of ourselves. 
Save, throw ourselves at the mercy of the Almighty God because we are not saved by works. How are we therefore saved? We are saved by trusting in the substitutionary death of another. And so in Christ, our Jonah, if you will, thrown overboard on the cross, as it were, is our hope and stay. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Father, we thank you that this message that you have written down, etched upon the tables of your holy word, has been preserved through the ages. Not just in one place at one time, but in multiple occasions and in many ways, so that through shadow and type, through prefiguring and prophecy, you have ordained that your message of truth march on through the ages until its fulfillment in Christ. And we today are the beneficiary of this track record of your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would take these words, that they would not just be written on the pages of Scripture as we have read them today, but they would be written on the tables of our heart, that we may not soon forget them, and that we may capitalize, as it were, on opportunities and crises to share the gospel, that perhaps through our echoing the words you've already proclaimed, a Gentile or two, a whole boatload or a city might come to faith in the one true God. Thank you for this faith-building message we received from your word. Help us to walk obediently in light of it. For your glory and namesake and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.